the word of God from Mark. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And the entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, these ancient words, these ancient accounts seem too good to be true. So this morning we pray for faith. We pray that the beauty and the mystery of these ancient words would fall on our hearts in a new way. Um, That you'd give us faith and replace cynicism with affection. Lord, we really need that. So we just commend this time to you and ask that your spirit would be present in a special way. We pray to the glory of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Ronnie, as I mentioned earlier. So... This morning is our final sermon in the sermon series on Mark, chapter 16, as we just heard. Now, for you very sensitive listeners, you'll notice that I skipped chapter 13. Chapter 13 was like, has a lot of like Jewish apocalyptic uh, literature in it. And I did skip that on purpose because I think I want to do a whole sermon series on the book of Revelation next year. Because most people don't know what to do with the book of Revelation, and they just hear weird stuff. And I want to make it not weird. And I think it could be a really fun sermon series. So I skipped 13. And then I also uh, skipped chapter 15. We did 14 last week. Um, Chapter 15 uh, is the actual details of the crucifixion. And when we get to Lent, we'll be looking very carefully and slowly um, on the theology of the cross. So I'm just kind of saving some of that for uh, Lent So now we're in 16. It's the last chapter. uh, And it's probably worth mentioning that the last chapter of every gospel, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the last chapter of all four gospels, they all describe the events of the resurrection. Now, just as we've learned, Mark's account is the briefest. This is like so typical of like Mark's style. Uh, John Mark, the author, is all about like throwing down a few details, like dropping a mic and saying like deal with it. That's kind of his M.O. Now, Mark is interesting because he's, he's so brief, but he's so brief with everything. I mean, the book actually starts not with the virgin birth, 
But it starts with Jesus being baptized as an adult and beginning his ministry. And so what's the point? Well, when we read this short account, we see the, the details that he elects to include. And, we, and when we see this, the, the brief things that he includes, we got to ask ourselves, what is John Mark's agenda? Like, what does he want us to believe? I call him John Mark because that's his full name. You know, you, you meet him in the book of Acts. The Gospel of Mark is John Mark, just in case you're wondering why I always call him John Mark. Now, of uh, the four Gospels in the New Testament, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is the oldest. It was written around the mid-50s in the first century. And so if Jesus was crucified and buried in the early 30s, then this particular uh, Gospel was published roughly 20 years after the event. So John Mark, who was the traveling companion of Peter, he has this agenda, and he wants to make sure that everyone, that the people truly understand what happened. And so this account of Jesus ends with a resurrection. Now listen, it's important to remember, because in the first century, there's no internet, right? There's no, like, tweeting, right? There's no hashtag he rose, right? Nobody in the outer regions knew that Jesus truly resurrected from the dead. News was starting to trickle far and wide, but no one knew the details. And so eyewitnesses, uh, they write these accounts on behalf of the apostolic community, and they were very specifically written to set the record straight. That's what the Gospels are. And Mark is the oldest one, and he's super... Super brief, and so every word counts. Now, for a little bit of context, Mark's audience struggled to believe in resurrection. And those who did believe struggled to believe what it meant. And guess what? That's you, right? Right? We have doubts. Will the dead, will the dead stay dead? Or is there really a resurrection and if there is a resurrection, what does it mean? What are we talking about? And why should we even care? So I hope to evaluate our passage, our text this morning with those questions in mind. And it's really important. It's good because, you know, we talk about Jesus' death very regularly in the church. But it feels like we only talk about resurrection at Easter. And that's too bad because it's as important or more important even than the crucifixion. And so I think the details of our text are going to help us understand Mark's sacred and holy inspired agenda. And so I think there are going to be three features in this passage that we're going to dig into that will uncover it. And those for you note takers are, first, we're going to look at the unlikely witnesses. Then we're going to look at the bodiless tomb. And lastly, the news that's almost too good to be true. So witnesses, tomb, and news that seems to be too good to be true. So with that, let's begin with the unlikely witnesses. Now, I know you've noticed this, um, but reading the Bible can be really hard. Don't pretend otherwise, everyone. Don't be too spiritual. It's hard. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that you should not do it. So many people have literally given their lives. They have died under intense persecution so that you and I could have the word of God in our language. 
in our homes. And so you should absolutely treasure the Bible and swim in it regularly. But when you do, sometimes it will be difficult. The Bible was written to a people and to a, in, in a culture that was very different than ours. And there are all these kinds of cultural norms and presuppositions that we don't easily recognize when we're reading the Bible. So right away in our passage, that kind of emerges. Verse 1, there's kind of a bomb there that you might detect. In verse 1, we are told that the very first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome. Now this is not, this little verse is not an innocent or inconsequential observation. Uh, If you've been in Bible studies before, many of you probably know this, you know that women specifically in the Roman Empire were not considered fit to give testimony in a court of law. If a person is to testify that something is true, that something happened, you would not want in the Roman Empire to use a woman. Now listen, that's not even the hardest, worst part of it. Mary Magdalene, if you know a little bit about your New Testament, is a woman who was demon-possessed. Like Jesus exercised a demon from her. Now, are you following this? If you're going to start a religion whose validity rests on the resurrection of a crucified Messiah, then you don't want to mess up the message with a bad spokesperson. That would be kind of like using Martha Stewart to promote your new day day trading stocks and more business, right? It's just like a bad idea. So why in the world does Mark carefully record that these women were the first eyewitnesses. Because you would think this was like such bad luck for God, like the horrible press. This would have been extremely culturally unpopular. Why did Mark include this detail? Why not just like, I don't know, conveniently leave it out? Now here's why. First of all, because that's how it happened. <laughs> Mark's not gonna change history just because it would have been culturally unpopular. Other religions do that, not Christianity. Remember, we say this often. Sometimes the Bible comforts us. Sometimes the Bible afflicts us. But we take all of it because these are like God's words. So that's for a second. The witnesses themselves, who they are, teach us about the depth of the message. Listen, almost immediately, the earliest Christians believed that God's resurrection changes everything. I mean, you you don't have to to die to begin to experience the power of resurrection. You know, the Apostle Paul would capture the sentiment when he says, if you are in Christ, the new has come. You are a new creation. The new has come. The old is gone. Right? Well, guess what? Like, people actually believe that. This newness in right now. The truth of Jesus' resurrection meant something to these outsiders, right? To these social pariahs. These women did not give a flip that they were culturally unpopular or outsiders because they knew. They knew that they were loved. And so this formerly demon-possessed prostitute would now become an eyewitness and a spokesperson 
for the resurrected Jesus. Christianity does not play by the rules of the culture. And my goodness, like, this is such good news. <laughs> like, so, like, this gives me so much comfort. If you have ever done anything in your life that is really stupid, and I mean the kind of stuff that is haunting, it gives you, like, haunting regret. If you ever, like, lay in bed at night replaying that thing that you've done that you just wish you could make disappear, that profound regret, that embarrassment that is almost paralyzing. If you have ever felt like that, then this text has the power to set you free and seize your soul with joy and rest. Because you know why? Just like with Mary Magdalene, God is not embarrassed by you. He's so glad to put his arm around you. God's future resurrection is pulled into your present moment and begins now. And your demon-possessed prostitution background or whatever your story is, is now made, you are now made whole and new again. Beautiful, desirable, lovable. You have done, you have nothing else to prove. You have nothing else to prove to be made whole. When they heard this story, when the people in the first, cert, at the first century, you know, like they were hearing rumors of this, they didn't, they didn't quite know what to believe, right? They're hearing these eyewitness accounts. And as they're hearing the details, they thought to themselves, ah, it has to be true. Like Mark clearly doesn't play by the rules. God is not embarrassed by these details. And my goodness, I hope it's true because I want it to be true for me too. That's how they heard these words. Just like it was for Mary and how it's supposed to hit your heart. So that's the unlikely witnesses. That's the first feature of this text. But there is a second one, our second point, and it is the bodiless tomb. So we're told in the chapter before, the, the last few verses in chapter uh, 15, uh, Jesus was laid in the tomb. Uh, it's actually a borrowed tomb of a friend. Uh, because of his wild popularity, Jesus had a very highly visible crucifixion. Uh, Rome wanted to make sure that nothing weird happened, and so they buried him, and so his body was put in the tomb. Now apparently, in verse 4, there's this little commentary. I loved how Knightley read it. It really came out in his reading that uh, the stone covering the tomb was extremely big. Again, Rome did not want any shenanigans, and so they put a big old rock there and, uh, because this whole event was very politically touchy. Now, although Jesus had said time again that he would rise from the dead, the women totally did not believe him. <laughs> That's why they were going there to treat the corpse with oil and spices in a way that would have been very typical for their day. And while they're worrying about the stone, how big it was, verse 3, you know, like Mary's like, hey, Salome, how much do you bench press? Like, well, I need to do some math here. When they, they, what they, when, during that conversation, they realize that the stone had been moved. And they nervously go into the tomb and they see an angel. It is not Jesus. Verse 6, the angel says, 
do not be alarmed. Now he said this because they're alarmed, like they're freaking out, right? So he continues, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. It's like him saying, hey, listen up, ladies, like take a look around. Jesus is gone. And he took his body with him. He took his body with him. This is like extremely important. There is no body. Now let me tell you why this is so edgy. In ancient Palestine, there are kind of two main groups of thought. On one hand, you had the Hebrews. Uh, but they, be they, they believed in a physical resurrection, but they believed that there would be one main collective resurrection for everyone at the very end of time. But here's the thing. For there to be a personal resurrection in the middle of history, that was absolutely unthinkable. It is going against their, their understood theology. On the other hand, you have the Greeks, right? In Greek thought, they, had, they were like, at this time, it's kind of a precursor to Gnosticism. Uh, they were like Epicureans. And when these guys thought about like the physical realm, uh, the physical body, when they thought about bodies, they, they thought of your body as like a, like a slave suit, like your body's a prison of sorts. They thought that true, unadulterated reality, what is desirable, would be totally spiritual. So for them, leaving their bodies behind and becoming this disembodied ghost-like spirit was preferable. That's actually what they wanted. So here's the deal. When the women saw that the body was gone, the implication was that Jesus and his body cannot be separated. Jesus and his body cannot be separated. Jesus is his body and he's gone. It's not the case that Jesus died, but his spirit lives on. No, Jesus is alive. The body is resurrected. Now it went through this crucible of death, but he was resurrected. And the resurrection is not an idea. The resurrection is an event, you see. You know, C.S. Lewis, reflecting on the Lord's table, I probably should have used this in last week's sermon, but he says something that's relevant to this conversation. He says, he says there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely spiritual creature. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Now, if I had to guess, every time I preach about the resurrection, for some of us, this is actually a little new. Now listen very closely. If this seems weird, what I'm saying, if this is new to you, and I say this reverently and pastorally, it's because your Christian formation has not been as strong as it should. All of the earliest Christian creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, they finish with something like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. See, the earliest Christians wanted to make sure that no one bought into Greek Gnostic thought. But here's the deal. It has crept into our notions of heaven. Many people believe that when you die, you grow these extra appendages, wings, and you turn into an angel. Listen to me. There are angels. In fact, there was an angel in our passage this morning. But that is a completely different creature. We do not become angels when we die. We become a perfect, imperishable imperishable version of ourselves. Many well-intentioned people try to offer comfort at funerals by saying something like this. And I'm saying this reverently because we've all lost people that we love. We might say something like this. Well, your mom got her wings and she's looking over you from heaven. Have you heard that? Listen, no matter how sentimental that is, it's not true. If your mother is in heaven, I promise you her eyes are fixed on her Savior. Jesus has made her fully herself. And Jesus, not your mother, is who is watching over you. And because of the resurrection, you will one day be united for all those who are in Christ. Let me tell you why the resurrection of the body is is preferable to turning into a ghost spirit with white robes who plays the harp, which the Bible absolutely does not teach. That sounds more like Dante, all right? The Bible does not teach that. We, you know, um, we, we talk about this kind of thing uh, you know, I, I talk about this at Easter, but it bears repeating here. You know, um, this idea of YOLO. Like when I was young, YOLO wasn't a thing, but now like kids say YOLO. Y'all know what that means, right? I mentioned this once. Y-O-L-O, you only live once, right? Y'all remember this? So what, what's behind this sentiment? Like behind the sentiment is this idea that living this life, being human, and all that that means will end, right? You only live once. The delight of a savory meal, the, the breathtaking hush that comes over your soul when you look at the Grand Canyon, the, the ecstasy of hearing an orchestra play Mozart or Bach, the laughter of a young baby like little Riley, she was smiling at me, the sensuous pleasure of a back massage where you feel it, the thrill of discovering the ruins in Greece. All these experiences come precisely because of our humanity. And we have wrongly come to believe that this life is the only channel for such profound human pleasures. Because, well, you only live once. And so you need to squeeze everything out of this life. So make sure you check off all those things on your bucket list. Because if you miss out, it's gone forever. 
And if you believe that this physical life is all that you have, then you have to be selfish. Like you have to be greedy. You have to look out for your own interests. You can't take risks. Why? Because you are protecting and squeezing everything out of this limited supply of human life. It's simple economics. But the resurrection, as the Bible teaches, says no way. There is more life yet. If there's any joy, any pleasure, any laughter, any sweet adrenaline in this life, then that's only an appetizer of what you're going to get. And because this is true, all these experiences and more that you're going you're to get in the new heavens and the new earth, because that is true, you don't have to protect and be greedy with your life. You can serve and give your life away. You can risk. You don't have to be afraid of death. Because of the bodiless tomb, we can know that the deepest pleasures and joy of this life will be forever available to us when we are with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Our deepest and unhindered and unblemished experience of our humanity will be granted forever as we are once united to Christ on that day, the day of our resurrection. So instead of YOLO, according to the Bible, you live forever physically. And so you don't have to anxiously squeeze out or hoard everything today. You can enjoy life without anxiety of FOMO, another word, fear of missing out. You can rest, like you can take breaks. You can give yourself away. You can commit and register to things on our email, not waiting to the last minute to keep your options open. You can just say, I'm going to do that. Okay, that was heavy-handed. That was a little heavy-handed. But seriously, register. That stone was not removed so that Jesus could get out. That stone was removed so that you could peek in and see what your destiny is. All right, let's review and finish on the final point. So this... This passage was written to an audience that did not initially believe that Jesus rose from the dead after his crucifixion. Um, this passage gives us eyewitness accounts. It tells us a story that we, uh, it tells us a story so that we can feel why the resurrection is important, right? We considered the the unlikely witnesses and how the news of the resurrection and the implications. Uh, for a present-day experience of wholeness, right? We looked at um, the bodiless tomb. Uh, Jesus is his body, and he was resurrected. No, no disembodied spiritual resurrection. The church has always rejected that. The bodily resurrection means something for you and for me. And now, the very last feature of this passage is that the news appears too good to be true. All right, so let's revisit the details so these women, 
who are faithful followers of Jesus. They were with him during his teaching ministry. They heard him predict that he would die and rise again, not less than at least three times, probably way more. They were with him in his execution on the cross, which is way more than the 12 disciples could say. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they scattered. They were cowards, not these women. They were courageous and faithful. But they were not convinced that he would be resurrected. We know this because they were shopping for spices and oil, right? They assumed that there would be a body when they arrived. They didn't really think that he would be resurrected. But when they arrive, of course, the wheels come off. The stone was rolled away. And there was an angel saying that Jesus is risen. And what did this inspire in the hearts of these women? Well, verse 5 says they were alarmed. Verse 8 says that, says that trembling and astonishment had seized them. So much so that they said nothing to anyone for they were very afraid. And that's how the gospel of Mark ends. Like, that's the last verse. It has a very anxious ending. Now, some of you, if your Bibles are open, it includes another set of verses, 9 through 20, and you'll see a little asterisk in your Bible. Uh, it's those verses are like more church tradition. It's considered a spurious addition. It's, it's not really a big deal. I can explain this to you after the service or whatever. It's it just means that the very oldest manuscripts of the Bible that we have just end at verse 8 with this very angsty finish with no resolution. That's how Mark ends. Now, how come? The Gospel of Mark ends this way because it's foreseeing a reaction from the reader. It's a literary device. How are we supposed to interpret their fear? Well, most people think about when we think about faith, we kind of oversimplify the phenomena of faith, right? I mean, on one hand, you have like non-believers. Uh, non-believers don't believe in resurrections uh, because the event is supernatural. Thus, uh, a resurrection is, is just irrational, right? Uh, it doesn't make sense to rational, scientific, logical people or something like that. On the other hand, you have believers, again, we're oversimplifying. We, um, these believers uh, believe everything that Jesus says, right? We just believe everything. It's so easy for us to believe everything. And uh, we just live lives that are very consistent with our beliefs. Not at all. Here we are. We don't really fit either of those categories. They're, they're too simplistic, right? I mean, we believe but help our unbelief, right? Those are the words that really resonate with us. And so these women, they were faithful. They loved Jesus, but could he really resurrect? See, for these women, the logical and rational thing was to buy oil and spices and to anoint a dead Messiah. Because, all they, because although they believed, it felt too good to be true. Putting like all your hopes in a resurrection feels risky. 
And if life has taught us anything, it has taught us to be measured with our longings and our desires because we will most certainly be disappointed. That's probably how most of you have shown up today. It's like, hey, don't get your hopes up too much so that it doesn't hurt that bad when you're disappointed. And we have learned to kill hope. Like, oh man, I hope that there is a resurrection. I hope that everything Ronnie just said is true. I want it to be true, but whatever. Let's go anoint a dead body, the dead body of our beloved Messiah. It's called killing hope, killing hope. Honestly, even when we employ our logic and rationality, we're doing it to kill hope. You know, several years ago, I read two books that came to the same conclusion, but from different disciplines. You have Jonathan Haidt. He is a moral philosopher from NYU. And you have Bessel van der Kolk. He's a research psychiatrist from Harvard. Both of these men propose that the brain, that is like the body's apparatus for logic and memory, that the brain is not employed to find truth. (laughs) In fact, the brain often uses logic and memory to hide the truth. We have these precognitive ideas, precognitive being um, feelings, gut instincts before we even use logic. These gut instincts, uh, the ideas about the path of life, uh, about a path of life that will not hurt us, that will not disappoint us. And then what we do is we work backwards. We use our logic and rationality to defend that intuition, that precognitive idea. That, I believe, is what describes what happened with these women. They really loved Jesus. They wanted the resurrection to be true. But their broken hearts led them to believe that the resurrection was too good to be true. And so they killed hope. Their spirits were conquered. And they picked up some oil and spices And they went to the tomb expecting to see a body. And not only them, we expect disappointment instead of hope. Hope? Yeah, we kill that. Now listen, if you've zoned out, listen, because I want, this is, will set your heart in a new direction if you'll believe me. This text is saying, learn to hope again, cynical, broken-hearted ones, beloved though, learn to hope again. It's not too good to be true. All the tears and disappointments in your life have taught you the wrong lessons of cynicism and disappointment, but this is not an occasion for disappointment. It's true, the tomb is empty. Jesus' death was reversed, and so his death was made untrue. And what this means is is that all the sad stories of your life, and you got them, will be untrue one day. They'll be made untrue. The final chapter of all that we hope for and all that we are destined for will be fulfilled in Christ. Christ. Who says the resurrection says so? It's not too good to be true. It's too too good to be false. 
Y'all, Mark, John Mark, he writes this gospel for you. May God replace your cynicism and your skepticism with hope and longing. Amen. Amen.